Ephesians chapter 6, verse 17 to verse 20. Uh, I'll just read those words again for us. Uh, I'll start from verse 17. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. What is prayer? When should I pray? How should I pray? How should we pray as a church? Uh, Just a few of the many questions all of us have about prayer. And I guess we can summarize that question into one, can't we? Does prayer matter? Uh, Is prayer important? Uh, And I hope your answer is yes. Prayer is important. I hope that's your answer. And yet, as we think about that answer that prayer is important, it's worth asking ourselves another question. Is talking to God a priority for you? Do you long to talk to God? Do you notice when you've gone through a period and you haven't really spoken to God? And what about us as a church? Uh, Would we say we are a praying church? Would we say that talking to God is a priority for us as a church? As someone has said, nothing is talked about more and practiced less than prayer. So our goal this month is to encourage us, uh, encourage one another really to talk to God every day and to make that a top priority in our life, in our individual lives and in our life together. And to help us do this, I just want us to look at that passage we just read from Ephesians 6, verse 17 to verse, uh, verse 18 to verse 20 in particular. Uh, this, this is one of the passages in the Bible that teaches us why prayer is very important. We, we looked at a passage last week in First John chapter 5 that taught us why prayer is important. And this is another one uh, that teaches us why prayer is important. And when we look at these verses, I think the key truth that these verses are teaching us is this. It's saying prayer matters because prayer is the weapon we use to fight the battles of life through the strength of God. Prayer matters because prayer is the weapon we use to fight the battles of life through the strength of God. Uh, This passage in Ephesians comes at the end of the the letter of Paul to the church at Ephesus. Paul wrote this letter, of course, to people who are new followers of Jesus. They had lived in that ancient pagan city of Ephesus. And this letter really is divided in two parts. Chapter 1 to 3, Paul is reminding us that God has given us a new life in Christ. It's by grace you've been saved through faith, Ephesians chapter 2. It makes that point that we have this new life through the grace of God. In fact, it goes on to say we are one people now. Christ has destroyed the wall of separation that divides us. We're new people in Christ, united from different backgrounds, brought together as a new people in Christ. That's what chapter 1 to 3 is really getting at. Chapter 4 to 6 is explaining what it now means for, for us to live 
in light of what God has done. So if you read the letter of Paul, the letter of Ephesians, you notice that there are really no commands until you, be, you get to chapter 4. Everything up to 3 is really just telling you, they are indicatives, we might say. And then from chapter 4 onwards, it's now imperatives, what, how, how we should live. Because Paul wants, to understand us, wants us to understand who we are before we can understand what it means to live in light of who we are. And one of the things that Paul does in this second section, uh, particularly in chapter 6, is that Paul wants all followers of Jesus to understand that because we now belong to Christ, we have new powerful enemies. When you gave your life to Jesus, when you repented, you pledged your allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. But it was also an act of declaration of war against powerful forces in the universe. If you like, the paradox of our new life in Christ is that right now, right here, if you're trusting in Jesus, you are sat in the heavenly places with the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 1 makes that point. We are sat with Christ. And Paul expands on that in chapter 2. That's the reality. And yet, at the same time, you are still here physically. You are sat with Christ in the heavenly places, but yet you are here physically in this fallen world. So in one sense, you are safe and secure in Christ our King, and yet because you are still alive in this world, you are on enemy territory. You are facing deadly enemies that are at war against you. And that is why Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, he calls on us in this passage we just read, uh, to put on this spiritual protective gear that God has given us. We need to put this on, don't we? Uh, verse 10 to verse 12 says that, doesn't it? Let's just read that. It says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole hammer, the protective gear, that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's the call to put on the armor. And as we read from verse 13 to verse 20, we realize one thing about the armor. The armor is by and large defensive. It's a protective gear. Until we get to verse 17. There in verse 17 we are taught to wield the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And we are taught to pray at all times in the Spirit. If you like, verse 17 to verse 20 is teaching us that we fight the battles of life by allowing God the Holy Spirit to enable and direct our Bible-saturated prayers in Christ to the Father. This is what true spiritual warfare is. There's a lot of talk about spiritual warfare. Well, spiritual warfare is praying the Bible back to God, enabled by the Holy Spirit, through the power of the Holy Spirit, to the Father, through Jesus Christ. In complete dependence on the Holy Spirit. And so in these verses, uh, verse 18 to verse 20, uh, Paul teaches us, just three lessons I want to share with you this morning, that he teaches us about how prayer helps us to fight the battles of life in the strength of God. The first lesson, which is hopefully you can see there on your outline, is this. Prayer 
is fighting for ourselves. What is prayer? Prayer is fighting for yourself. The government constantly undertakes um, a national risk assessment. It's a national risk assessment against international terrorism. Uh, every, every time, every, every, in fact, I worked on one of these when I was a civil servant. Uh, they, they, they look at all the things that are going on in the country, the threats that the country is facing, and they come up with a, with a rating through all the different agencies in government. And, and, and the current threat level is substantial. That's the current threat level. There are different levels. And the current threat level in the country from international terrorism is substantial. What does that mean? That means you can go to the MET website, you can check for yourself. What that means is that an attack is likely, an attack is likely at any time to the UK. That's what it says, it's substantial. But in the kingdom of God, our threat level, if you like, if you were to do a risk assessment of the threat level, in the kingdom of God, the threat level should be critical. It is critical, which means an attack is imminent. It's not just likely. It is imminent in the kingdom of God. At any moment, you will be attacked. It's that real. And this is why God commands us here to pray. Look at verse 18. Verse 17 says, And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. Paul is saying, Pray all the time, in every way, and for everything. He's saying, fight in the strength of God for yourself. Paul is saying, in light of what I've said from verse 10, from verse 13 to verse 17, 16, so to speak, you need to realize that your life is a battlefield. We, as followers of Jesus, are in a battle raging between the kingdom of God and the domain of darkness. Now, today's society and some Christians tend to treat the devil as a sort of joke, someone trivial. Society tends to think of the devil as a sort of fascinating myth, and you have, you know, all these kinds of movies made about the devil, Hellboy, and all kinds of things. But the Bible is serious that the devil is a real and dangerous enemy. It's your number one enemy. It's worth reading verse 11, verse 12 to verse, well, verse 11 to verse 12 again. It says, put on the whole hammer of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. It's real. And the truth goes on to say, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. Whatever battles you are facing in life, Paul says, that's, that's not the battle. The real battle in your life is this one. But against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. Against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Satan is, 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 is Satan? Satan is a powerful fallen angel, the Bible teaches us, who has brought evil in the world. And the Bible says that he is our number one enemy. Satan rules over this fallen world with an iron fist. 
and he exerts complete control and power over this entire world. First John chapter 5, verse 19 tells us that. I think we're sometimes too quick to run to passages that assure us that God is in control. Of course, God is in control. But we have to remember in a fallen world, Satan is active in this world. First John chapter 5, verse 19 says this. We know that we are from God. We are under the power of God's control. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. That's what the Bible says. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. What the Apostle John is saying is that everything in this fallen world, politics, economics, religion, education, it is all part of this evil totalitarian system. Now, of course, the devil is just one person, right? So we might say, how does the devil run all of this? How can he have the entire world under his thumb? Well, if we go back to Ephesians, we see that the devil is not alone. He does his evil work through his own civil servants, we might say. The ones which are mentioned in verse 11 and verse 12, uh, particularly of Ephesians, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. The world is covered in present darkness. And it's these spiritual forces working with Satan that are keeping it under such darkness. Paul is saying that Satan is running a powerful organization with clear command structure, with a sense of ranking and orders. He has rulers, he has authorities, he has cosmic powers, a powerful machinery. And notice in Ephesians, it's set in the present tense, in this, over this present darkness, because it is emphasizing that Satan's demonic structure is relentless. They are working round the clock. They never take annual leave. They never sleep nor slumber. They are constantly working in this world. And of course, the satanic forces are many. They live and breathe evil to the core, and their job is to tempt, deceive, enslave, and oppress entire humanity. I'm emphasizing this point so that we understand that right now, right here, as we live in this world at this moment, until the Lord Jesus Christ comes, to establish his kingdom, this remains Satan's domain. This means we, as followers of Jesus, are living in hostile territory. We are foreigners in this world, in a dangerous land. And you, as a believer, as you sit here this morning, you must understand that if you are trusting in Jesus Christ, the devil is working flat out to destroy your faith in God. He's working flat out to destroy your family. He's working flat out to destroy everything good God has given you, including your job. As a believer, you must never forget that you are at war in an enemy territory. And you're not just at a war against the devil and his superstructure. You're also at war against the world system in general. The world is not your friend. First John chapter 2, verse 15 to 16 tells us. All that is in the world is your enemy. And of course, on top of that, you've got your flesh. You are still at war against your sinful flesh. This is a serious situation 
we are in as believers. Now, it is true that the Lord Jesus has defeated the devil. He has triumphed over him. Paul tells us in Colossians that on the cross, God, Christ Jesus made a public spectacle of his enemies. We who are in Christ are eternally secure. And I just want to say, if you haven't yet trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't yet repented, you're still in the enemy camp. You're still under the power of the evil one. And you need to repent so that you can be transferred from the domain of darkness and brought into the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why your parents are encouraging you to surrender to Jesus Christ. Why? They want you to be transferred from being under Satan's control to living under the Lordship of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if we are in Christ, we are eternally secure. And the devil cannot rob us of our salvation. No power can plunder the kingdom of Christ and steal us from his firm and loving grip. He who is in us is stronger than he who is in the world. At the same time, our victory that we share in Christ over the devil, the world and the flesh, is not yet fully visible. We live in the now, but not yet. We enjoy victory ultimately, but as we are in this present world, we don't yet see fully the victory. Until then, we are still on foreign soil. Until Jesus comes in glory, this world, until the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ becomes a ki- the kingdom of this world becomes the kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ, as long as we are here, we are on foreign soil. The devil will attack you, will ambush you. You will still be tempted to sin. You still struggle with sin. You still have suffering brought upon you by the evil one. Why do I say that? Because First Peter chapter five, verse eight to nine says that. First Peter chapter five, verse eight to nine says, "Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion." He's talking to believers, seeking someone, some believer, to devour. Resist him. Firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering, you notice that, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. In the context with which Peter is writing, the suffering they are going through has been brought on by Satan to shipwreck their faith. He's persecuting them. And Peter says to them, stand firm in Christ. How do we stand firm against the devil? What is our weapon? Well, Paul, when we go back to Ephesians 18, isn't it? 6 verse 18, he says, prayer is the weapon. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. In other words, we fight for ourselves by having a prayer-filled, well, a Bible-filled prayer to God. That's the weapon. The weapon, if you like, we might say, is, is, is the word of God and, and the power that works through that weapon is our prayer. So as we pray, Bible-filled prayer, we are wielding the sword. Beloved, 
if you are not regularly talking to God on your knees every day you are laying down the weapon against the devil against the world against your flesh you are living dangerously of course God will protect you but these are the means he has provided to protect you Prayerlessness is not only a sin of disobedience because God has commanded you to pray and you refuse to pray. Paul is teaching us here that it is a sin of spiritual suicide. When you are prayerless, you are practicing spiritual self-arming. But by not praying constantly and fervently giving yourselves to prayer, you are willfully refusing to use the very means God has given you to fight against your dangerous satanic your dangerous satanic enemies. God loves you and will protect you, but you must cooperate with him in that protection. Charles Spurgeon reminds us that prayer surrounds our human weakness with divine strength. In other words, prayerlessness leaves you defenseless in this dangerous war we are in. I think one reason many Christians today are prayerless is that we are like the servants of Elisha in the Bible. Do you remember the story of Elisha and the armies of God? One day a foreign king attacks Israel. He comes at night. I think he's a king of Aram. And he surrounds the city with a massive fighting force of horses and chariots. And so early in the morning, this happens at night, but early in the morning... A servant of Elisha wakes up, he gets up, and he notices that the city there is surrounded by the enemy. So he cries out to Elisha, Master, what are we going to do now? And Elisha says to him, don't worry about it. They are more on our side than on their side. Then Elisha prays to God, doesn't he, to open the eyes of the servant. And at that moment, the young man is shocked. God opens his eyes and this young man is shocked. Because what does he see? He sees the whole mountainside full of horses and chariots of fire. The armies of angels sent by God to protect them. You see, the servant of Elisha is like many of us today, isn't it? We see the world only through physical eyes. And I think that's Darwinian naturalism. We are swallowed in the naturalistic impulses of our culture. All this stuff we're taught about evolution, blah, 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 school and the physical, it, it adds up. And so when we are adults, we come to faith in God, we think we're not believing in this stuff, but actually the way we live, we live driven by those things. On Sunday, we're thinking of God and the angels. During the week, none of that. And so we see throughout the week, except on Sundays, a half reality. A half reality. The ultimate reality is the reality that Elisha saw at all times. What was that? He saw that he was living in a bigger war going on. A world of angels. A world in which angels are at war with one another. And we see a vision of that in Daniel, don't we? That's the ultimate reality. 
And the Bible is saying to us, Paul saw this reality. That's why he talks about principalities and powers. And what the Bible is telling us is that your prayers are vital in this war. Your Bible-saturated prayers are the means God has sovereign ordained to send you help on the battlefield of life. Again, God is sovereign. But don't forget the means through which he exercises his sovereignty. He has said it very clearly in scripture, unless you pray, I won't act. Unless you pray, you won't send help. And therefore we must pray. We must do our bit in this battle. And I think the problem is that many of us do not realize how serious prayer is. We don't realize there's a battle raging over the souls of your little ones. You don't realize there's a battle raging over your wife, over your husband, over this church. Over your own soul, over the place of work. We don't realize that. That's why we are so prayerless. The UK government just withdrew from Afghanistan. Why? Because they don't realize that the Taliban are about to overrun the country. That's why they are not engaging in war. They've withdrawn from that. We are like that. We are like the UK government. Just at the time when the war is raging, we do nothing. So what is the first thing we must do in light of this truth? Well, I think the first thing we must do is we, today we must repent of our unbelief in the existence of the devil. It is a shameful, isn't it? That we have left the reality of Satan to the charismatics. We have left the reality of Satan to those that do not know how to engage him properly. Us who allegedly understands all the points of Calvinism, us who sits on the privileges of the Puritans seem to be prayerless. Seem to be people that oddly mentions the devil in our prayers and the need to hold him back. We must repent of this heinous sin for not taking the spiritual reality seriously. The second thing we must do is to repent of our tragic failure to actually fight for ourselves and our families as God commands us to do. What would we say to a parent who lets a child walk dangerously in the road or allows his teenager to wander off at night without protection? Would say they are responsible? Would say they are not worthy to be a parent? Not that any of us are worthy to be parents, but we would say certainly they are not. We said they should not be a parent, isn't it? But I ask you, dear friends, dear loved one, I ask you, are we not guilty of the same thing spiritually by our prayerlessness? Parents, I ask you this morning, if you are not willing to pray and fast, even, and I mentioned fasting, pray and fast just for one day for your child, is that not spiritual negligence? If you have never at all in your life fasted for your children, is that not spiritual negligence? Is that not you saying, I am happy to endanger my children spiritually? If you, as a, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a child, you have not laid on God for your parents, you have not set aside a week of constant fervent crying out to God for your parents, 
Are you honoring your parents spiritually? I think not. Because in this most solemn responsibility of prayer, you have not taken up that responsibility to cry out to God, to wield this word through prayer. And beloved, I, I do not speak about these issues because I think I am without sin. I, this is my problem. Everything I speak to you about is only because there are areas where I'm repenting of sin myself. We must realize that there is a war going on and we are not thinking and looking at these issues spiritually. Yes, you are working hard to provide all the emotional and physical support to your spouse. But how are you doing in earnestly praying for her? You may be happy that you are prayerless, but dear lives, it goes beyond you. It goes to your spouse as well. Your lack of prayer is endangering her. It is endangering your family. And can I say many of us have prayed to God to bless us with a family and with good work. And the Lord has answered those prayers, hasn't he? But beloved, can I encourage you this morning to recognize this truth that once God gives us those things by prayer, we must hold on to them by prayer. The blessings came to you by prayer. Hold on to them by prayer. Don't just say God has given me a job, praise the Lord, that's it, now I can do what I like. No. Start praying seriously about your place of work. Pray for your boss to come to know Jesus. And so let us repent then for failing to pray. The final thing we must do here is that we must meditate regularly on the good news of Jesus, isn't it? Nothing reminds us of how much we need God than the gospel. Right? Remind yourself that you are still a wretched sinner, saved by the grace of God in Christ. The gospel reminds you that you have no strength of your own. You need his strength every day. So, repent of unbelief. Repent of the tragic failure to fight for yourself and preach the gospel to yourself. Because we are at war, aren't we? Our spiritual enemies are fierce and relentless and prayer is the means through which we fight in the strength of God for ourselves. That's the second point. I'll be quick on the next two points. The second point, the second truth that Paul is teaching us here is that prayer is not only fighting for ourselves, it is fighting for the church. It is fighting for the church. Paul commands here to pray for all followers of Jesus. Look at verse 18 again. Pray at all times in the spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. Keep persevering in prayer. Making supplication for all the saints. When I thought about verse 18, I said, really this is a command to pray for the whole church of God, isn't it? Starting with us here. He says, pray for all the saints. Starting with us here. Saints are those who have been set apart in Christ. Us who have truly repented. Us as a church. Pray for us as a church. As a church here, we are collectively engaged in spiritual warfare. We might say this church is a local army of God stationed here in Bexley Heath to fight the powers of darkness. And the weapons of our collective warfare is what? United prayer to God for each other. That's what Paul is getting at. 
And the prayers have to be united, isn't it? Because we know from military history that it is not the size of the army that wins war. It is the cohesion and the unity of the fighting force. You could have a large army, but if it's disunited, this one does this, that one does this, it's not getting anywhere. You could have a small, efficient army. That's why mercenary forces, they tend to be a small team working together to achieve an end. And this is true for us as believers here. In our spiritual warfare, praying to God for one another must be a united effort because when we are united, it is a formidable weapon, if you like, in our fight against our spiritual enemies. When we pray for each other, we are saying to God, your agenda is far bigger than my life. And I want to support your work in the lives of your people. You are saying to God, I know you love your church, and I love your church too, so I'm asking you, Lord God, to hear my prayers for your church. Praying for each other is a powerful weapon because it is prayer to God out of love for his people. And God loves us when we love to hear us pray for his people out of love for them. You know, some of you are parents. You know, if I came to you and said, I want to do something nice, or I begged you to do something nice for your child, if I was the one begging you to say, look, the boy is really doing well, please, mom, do something for him just in this area. Get him this different Christmas gift. I think there's a bigger chance of you hearing that than if the boy came to you himself, right? Just because when we love others and we beg for them on their behalf, wow, it's great, isn't it? The other people hear that. And even parents hear that. So if you as a child of God are, are crying for another child of God before God, God will hear that. Because it's your love being expressed and God wants to honor your love for that person. In our church today, as we sit here this morning, just from a wonderful time of prayer we had on Thursday, it was really wonderful, wasn't it? I mean, I enjoyed our time together when we were praying together over Zoom on Thursday. Just from that remarkable time of prayer we had, we know that in this church there are brothers and sisters who are struggling with physical and mental health. They need our prayers for healing. Just from that prayer time we had, we know we have dear ones here who are worried for their finances. And they need us to ask our Father to supply their needs according to his riches in glory. Just from that prayer time we had, we know that there are some here, including ourselves, who are facing difficult decisions to make concerning our families. The little ones, school options and things like that coming up. And we, I need wisdom from God in those areas. I need your prayers as we make those decisions. There are people here who have career choices. And they are seeking our prayers. There are some here just from um, discussing with a number of you, there are some here that feel discouraged. Who, feel who, they, who are in the region where they are doubting God. There are others who have fallen in addictive sins in the church. And they all need us to earnestly pray, fight for them in prayer. Some here are facing challenges in their lives that they cannot talk about. Many of us are in that situation. Our true battles are ones we can't really yet share with others. But they still need us 
to cry out to God, who knows, who sees the hearts of his people. The all-knowing God. They don't need to tell us the details of their prayer matters. The Lord knows. And we can cry out to them for that. You see, God wants his children to pray for one another. Because if we are not praying for one another, beloved, we are living self-centered prayer. We are self-centered prayer warriors. I mean, but the hell they laughs, doesn't it? It's funny, isn't it? To be a self-centered prayer warrior. It's, 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 a, it's a, what, an oxymoron? It's a self-contradiction, isn't it? Because we can immediately realize when we are when we're just focusing on ourselves and our family, our little world, we are saying to God, I'm only interested in praying for myself and by myself. And I'm only in Christ for me and my needs. No one else matters. I mean, <laughs> that attitude is like the sons of the prophet Eli. Do you remember them? They went to the temple to look after number one. That's what the sons of Eli were doing. Not for the interests of God and his people. And we know that God was angry with Eli and his sons for that. If we want God to hear prayers for ourselves, beloved, we must abandon the sin of self-centered prayer. God isn't going to answer your prayer if you're all about you. You must make a priority now to cry out for others. Start crying out to God for other people in the church. Make a list of people in the church. If you need us to make a list in the church, we'll make a list that you can use at least pray for one person in the fellowship each month. And most importantly, let us make an effort to join in prayer for each other. Join in prayer later as we meet, if you're still around. As we pray together in Barob, thank you, brother, for leading us through these prayer meetings. Join in that. Make an effort to join in the prayer over Zoom on Thursdays if you are able to. It was wonderful to have brother Michael there join us during this week and cry out to God together. Praying together is absolutely crucial because when we pray together, beloved, it delights God. I can't emphasize it more. When we pray together, that's what God wants to see. He wants us to see united in prayer. And when we pray together, it promotes unity of purpose and service to the Lord. When we do not pray together, we, we, we become vulnerable to sin, disunity, and confusion among us. The devil loves a prayerless church. And can I just ask you this question, therefore, is do you want to know the most important service that you can give the Lord for his church? It's not money. It's not the use of your gifts. Those things are important, of course, giving. But the most thing you can do for this church, which is not beyond anyone, is to pray for the church. Prayer is a Christian's first ministry. And so let us make an effort to pray and let us make an effort to join in in our prayer meetings. As a church, we desperately need God to pour out his power among us. We need God to give us a new burning zeal to know Christ and share him with others. We need God to accompany the preaching of his word with power. We need God to raise more elders and deacons as the work of the Lord increases among us. We need God to grow our Sunday school and to begin new work among young people who are desperate crying out for some work among us. We want them to learn about Christ, to know him and love him and serve him. 
We need God to help us as a church, not just to be self-focused, but to support missionary work around the UK and abroad. We need God to provide for our finances, and which have been in a permanent state of crisis. How will these things happen? Well, it's not about shouting them at the pulpit. I think you agree, I like a bit of shouting. But it's not going to come by that. right? It's not going to come by that. Beloved, it's only going to come by prayer. All of these things won't, will only come by prayer. Prayer is our first ministry as believers and as a church. Prayer is fighting for ourselves. That's the first point. And the second point is that prayer is fighting for the church. And now here is, I'll be brief. The final point, prayer is fighting for the world. Prayer is fighting for the world. That the grace of God demonstrated in Jesus is good news for the world. But the devil, of course, does not want the world to hear. That's Second Corinthians 4 verse 4. He has blinded the hearts and minds of unbelievers so that they can't see the glory of Christ. How will their eyes be opened? Through the proclaiming of the good news. And when we proclaim the good news of Jesus, it is putting us in a war situation with our fearsome enemy. Because the gospel is bad news for our enemy. Why do we find it difficult to hear? Look, I can watch a football match for three hours. But why do I struggle just to listen to a message for 30 minutes? Because it's war, beloved. The proclamation of the good news is war. And Satan is working flat out to cut off my interest in listening to the word of God. The gospel is bad news for the devil. It is robbing, ransacking his kingdom. Why have the churches been closed in this country? Well, there's COVID, yes, etc., etc., right? But why were they closed? Why were churches quick? Because the devil set them to it, to close the proclamation of the gospel. The proclaiming of the gospel is bad news for Satan. And therefore, he doesn't want it. That is why Paul is asking the church at Ephesus to pray for him. Verse 19 to verse 20. And from, he says this, To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints, and also for me, that words may be given to me, in what? In opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly, as I ought to speak. Simply put, Paul is saying, look, I, I, we may think of Paul as a gifted preacher. We, we, we know that he was inspired by the Lord. But Paul here is confessing, I cannot preach the gospel unless God gives me the right words to say. I cannot preach the gospel unless I'm filled with the boldness to speak it. Especially with the wrists on my chains. Because Paul is writing this from prison, of course. He says, I cannot do it unless you pray for me. When we look at accounts in the Bible and church, church history of revivals, we are always seeing people praying. Prayer fuels the advance of the gospel. Beloved, in our church today, we have people here this morning that have not yet surrendered to Jesus Christ. How will they come to trust in Jesus? It will only happen by God sovereignly breathing new life into them. How will that happen? It will only happen if we give ourselves to prayer for God to, for God to pour His Spirit and convict those who do not know Him yet 
to bring them to true repentance and faith. Outside this church, there are many people who have never said, can I just say on prayer on that? I believe I hold my salvation purely to my mother. Because she prayed for me every single day. Even when I had backslidden, she was like, Chola, what are you doing? <laughs> the church is behind you. Go attend. And of course, mothers do that. And, she, and then she would say, I'm praying for you to start attending church. Again, when I went through a period of backslide. That's wonderful, isn't it? That's powerful when a mother speaks like that. So I know from my own personal experience that the, the power of prayer in bringing us to conversion. I'm not saying that all the time that happens, somebody must be praying, but we know of many stories that by and large, it happens through prayers of people for us. And in heaven will be surprises. There will be strangers who prayed for us to bring us, that, that, that the Lord answered their prayers. So we must realize prayer is the way in which God works to bring people to himself. Right outside here, there are people who, who there are many people here who, in our neighborhood, who need to hear the good news of Jesus. How will that happen? Well, it will only happen by God placing a burden on our hearts to go out and share the good news of Jesus. But how are we going to have this burden to share the good news? Well, it's not by me shouting about it. As I say, I do that a lot of times. I think if shouting works, it would have worked for the last five years, right? Shouting doesn't work. It's the Lord Jesus himself who must place this burden on our hearts to go out and share the gospel. And for that to happen, we must pray for a burden. We must pray that God gives us that burden. I know some of you have loved ones who do not know Jesus. How will they be saved unless you intercede for them? Through you fighting spiritually for them in prayer. I, I, think, I, think, I, I think it's absolutely delusional to expect God to save our loved ones when we're not even willing to bow down in prayer for them. It's delusional. Of course, God is sovereign. But if we want our loved ones to come to know Jesus, we must give ourselves earnestly to this. Because in prayer, we approach God, our Father, through the power and strength of the Lord Jesus Christ, His Son, our all-conquering King, and we are enabled by God the Spirit to pray. The Lord Jesus Christ, our ever-reigning champion, faced Satan throughout his life, and he defeated him. The Lord Jesus Christ's victory over the powers was complete on the cross. And through his victorious death, Jesus has enrolled each one of us now to enforce the victory. And we enforce the victory over Satan through prayer. And Paul is teaching us here this morning. Wow, we do that by praying, don't we? Prayer is fighting for ourselves. Fighting for the, for the church and fighting for the world as God commands. Amen.